Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkingStuff.net. This is a show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, hop on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued support. This episode features Frank Richard, that's spelled R-I-C-H-A-R-D, but rather than pronounced Richard, it's Richard. Did you know that? If not, you've already got your first piece of insider information from this episode of Truth and Rhythm. Frank Richard, the original and only lead singer of New Orleans funk masters, Chocolate Milk. The eight-piece group got its start in the early 1970s, succeeding another famous funk band from the Big Easy, the Meters, as producer-songwriter Alan Toussaint's backing band. Signed to RCA Records, the only recording home Chocolate Milk would ever have, the group released the first of its eight albums with 1975's fantastic Action Speaks Louder Than Words. Other notable albums included Chocolate Milk's self-titled release in 1976, We're All in This Together in 1977, and Blue Jeans in 1981. The latter two had superior title tracks, and their entire catalog included hits and deep funk cuts like My Mind is Hazy, Pretty Pimping Willie, Let the Music Take Your Mind, I Refuse, Grand Theft, Girl Calling, the amazing jazzy funk track that first got me into the band, Say Wucha, Hey Lover, Running on Empty, Honey Bun, Take It Off, Who's Getting It Now, Sweet Heat, the ballads, Keep It Coming, Over the Rainbow, and How About Love, the mid-tempo, Groove City, and the instrumental, Pluck It. Interesting chocolate milk fact that the music Take Your Mind is not the Cool in the Gang song, and Over the Rainbow is not from The Wizard of Oz. These are actually original compositions, and I might add, as good or better than those, to say the least. The classically trained and college-educated music major, Richard's versatile singing voice, allowed the band to blend elements of dozens of other popular group styles into their own funk gumbo. In that sense, Chocolate Milk was similar to the chameleon-like Barquets, who ironically the group would end up replicating when Barquets producer Alan A. Jones produced Chocolate Milk's final two albums. During that period, Barquets and Chocolate Milk band members worked on each other's albums as well. Those would be the band's final works, as by 1983, they parted ways with RCA and never produced another studio LP. Alas, while Chocolate Milk did notch three top 15 R&B chart hits and sent another three into the top 40, and also toured with a who's who of funk, the group never rose to the success and notoriety level of its leading contemporaries. I'm talking about bands like the Commodores, Earth, Wind & Fire, then below that would be your cameos, your confunctions, and then groups like Chocolate Milk. However, given Richard's great talent and that of the rest of the band, and how amazing they sounded with all cylinders firing, a lot of the blame must be laid at the record label, management, promotion, or lack thereof, and just as extenuating circumstances. Fortunately, Chocolate Milk never stopped performing and continues to do so to this day. Here, Richard tells all of the fascinating chocolate milk history, the high points, the low points, turning points, and everything in between. He gets into what made the band so special, the creative process, 
the albums, the tracks, the should have beens and could have beens, and other fascinating aspects of his life. As you will see, he is a bit of a live wire and a highly detailed storyteller. I had a great time with Frank Richard, and I'm certain you will as well. It's a long one, but well worth the journey and broken into three segments to make it easier to go down. As a matter of fact, I think you'll find it all goes down as smooth and sweet as chocolate milk. Hey, I am so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm rocket ship, Mr. Frank Richard, the original lead singer and composer of New Orleans funk giants, Chocolate Milk. Good afternoon. Hey. Hello. Hi, Scott. It is wonderful to be here again. I'm again in New Orleans, if you can see that. And uh, it's not raining here. It's wonderfully hot, as usual, as New Orleans is. Uh, and I'm just thrilled again to see you guys. So uh, I'm, I'm just looking forward to a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Much appreciated. It's not every day I get to you know, have a show that involves one of my favorite foods and one of my favorite bands. So. <laughs> the right place. We're in the right place. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, this is the big easy for real. So when you talk about laid back and you want to come on, stay down here, you be prepared to do nothing and, and eat a lot of wonderful seafood and, and all the spicy foods of what we have, Zatarans and all of that stuff, you know, that Cajun stuff. So, yeah. I've, I've, but, had the uh, I've had the pleasure. I've had the pleasure. I guess that goes with the funk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so maybe that's why we have that funk gumbo happening all the time. So uh, that's probably why we got what we got. So in chocolate milk, you know. But uh, so, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into that, Frank. Let's so, go. Um, but first, before getting to the exciting chocolate milk stuff, uh, I want yeah, to lead yeah. up to that a little bit. So. Could you tell yeah. us, um, you know, you're from New Orleans originally, I'm not sure, but where were you from originally and what was your childhood like and when did you get into music? Yeah, I was born in New Orleans. Uh, you know, again, we have the Richard, uh, Richard name again, uh, the culture, of, uh, a little bit of Haitian Creole going on. And uh, uh, I, I went to a, a, a big name school here in New Orleans and it's kind of like all over the country. It's known for its marching band. So St. Augustine High School is what it's called. And so I went to St. Augustine High School. Uh, I did not get in the band. I was in music, but I didn't play an instrument other than piano and uh, vocal. And so I, at the age of 14, around that age, I, I got into St. Augustine High School. A little bit before that, I took piano lessons uh, at the age of 12. And uh, there were lots of uh, great... Uh, piano uh, teachers here, uh, especially performing-wise. And so uh, um, I was able to, to uh, get piano. Uh, taking you back just a little bit further than that, my dad played piano. Um, and he would play a lot of Fats Domino. So through all our house, we had nothing but 45s, you know, during that time, 45 RPMs. Uh, very, there were some of the, of the big records we had, uh, the 78s, they were, they were big. But uh, uh, most of mine, I was always listening to 45s. So, and during that time, it was, you know, the big Stax records and, uh, and the Motown. And so, you know, all around that time, we just had records on top of records. I used to listen to them all. Elvis Presley was so big in the house. 
and we used to listen to a lot of pop radio all the time um, here in New Orleans. And so uh, that was kind of my uh, 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 world, you know, and singing downtown. A, a guy singing the, the song downtown. To the so Clark. We, yeah. For two o'clock, you know, so that takes us way back. Uh, uh, and so I, I used to listen to all of those things, but my dad actually got the piano when I was about 12 for Christmas. And uh, I, uh, I kind of got into it through listening to so many 45s. I listened to so many 45s and da 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 da. And I, then I got to the, the Four Tops Sugar Pie Honey Bun. Uh, uh, can't help myself. And so uh, I used to love the bass line. And I started to try to learn that bass line on the piano. And from then, I just got interested in learning bass lines. And I would learn bass lines. And then before you know it, I was actually playing chords. Then by that time, my family was looking at me like, well, you know, this boy is it's actually playing all of this stuff, you know, he's just picking it up and he needs to get some lessons. So uh, around 12 or so, I, I met Jermaine Basil. Uh, she's a jazz singer now, but she was a, a pretty good uh, uh, artist all the way around. She could play bass. She could play. Uh, she was a she was kind of like still jazz ish. She was jazz, but at the same time, she was classical. So she did a lot of piano playing. So during that time, she was that kind of a lady. So my dad actually introduced me to her as a piano teacher. And, um, and what I did not know, I didn't know that she could actually uh, play, as we would call it in New Orleans, play by ear. She could play by ear also by, by the notes. So it really was good for me because. Um, I could do both also, but I was learning to read. And through her, she was helping me get through all of that because uh, uh, if, if anybody ever played by ear that you would know, uh, the, hinder, the hindrance of, uh, of learning notes, learning to, to read music and by ear, you, you got this block going on because what you hear and what you're reading gets to be confused and uh, 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 and and you pick it up so quickly. So in my case, I was always picking up the chord changes and where that was going uh, before I actually read it. And so I could kind of uh, anticipate uh, what was going to come next. And sometimes I'd be right and sometimes I'd be wrong. So that's a part of playing by ear. You, 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 it's a chancy thing, but at the same time, it's a wonderful discovery, and, and you like that adventure. And as a kid, you like to challenge yourself on what's coming next, what's coming next. So um, that was the hardest part for me. So it was very hard to read music for me because I was constantly challenging my inner ear, if that makes any sense. Yeah. But... Uh, but anyway, from that point on, uh, I began to start writing music and uh, because I was already composing music and didn't know I was. And so we would actually do a list song or we would do a Chopin and uh, and she, she would tell me, I, you need to learn this for next week's next week's uh, uh, practice lesson. And so I say, oh, OK. And then I would say, well, um, could you play it for me? And she would play it. Now, this is what you need to learn, you da, 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 da. And I would hear it. And as soon as I would hear it, I'd play it back for her. 
And so she was like, oh, wow, okay. But I don't need you to do that. I want you to read the music. And that was difficult for me because I would already have it. And then I had to go and read it. And so uh, it was like backwards to me. But that was, mm -hmm, that was a challenge. But anyway, so go fasting forward from that. We're getting the 45s, as I was saying. Again, that's the way I learned most of all the songs of that time, Jackie Wilson and James Brown and da, 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 da. we can go on from all of that situation uh, that we had back then, because that was a lot of music back that time and that time and that time. So uh, and, and, and a lot of the popular music were, were just was rampant on the radio station. So and I love radio during that time. So I was always on the piano. And from then. Um, during my school days, when I was 14, uh, there were young guys coming across putting together bands. So that was kind of the, the trend there. Everybody was like putting together bands. Well, I've got a band. Would you come play piano for me? They didn't want me as a singer, but more of a, of a, of a piano player. And so I was getting into the band. And one of the first bands called the Javelins, I got in with the Javelins and and I was doing playing with that. And then uh, they needed somebody to sing. And so I just volunteered to sing. And voila, I started singing. And before you know it, I was off the piano and into the front line of singing. So and how old that were was you one at that of my time? kids. I, I, was about, I was about 14. I was about 13, 14 years old. And then when I got, because I was ninth grade. So by the ninth grade, there were a lot of talent shows during that time, and I got involved in the talent shows, and I would win them. And, uh, and then from then, I started having bands back up. Every time at the talent show, they would back me up. Sonics bands. There was another band called um, The Gladiators, and da-da-da-da, and on and on. And I would win them. And by me winning, a lot of other bands were recruiting to get me. And I uh, wind up with a, a group called the, the, the Deacons. And how that happened is uh, by the time I got to be 17, almost 18, I had gotten a early bird scholarship, music scholarship to Dillard University. And uh, Dillard University had ooh, a, ooh, a slew of vocal musicians. Everybody wanted to be uh, go into music vocally and so we must have had at least about two to three hundred uh vocal people going into music and i had gotten that early bird scholarship and i went to that during my summer program but when i actually started in that september uh, that's how many people were actually there by the time i got to my sophomore year there was only five of them yeah. um that's how that's how that theory class was kicking butt during that time, and it was what everybody loves to sing. But the but the the price that you had to go through uh, learning all of the theory and staying up to date on it and passing all the tests at the same time was so you was, stuck it uh, out. That was quite so a credit stuck, to that. Stuck it out, and and believe it or not, I was still challenging myself. So that was at that was at Dillon University. I had a wonderful experience there. Dr. Hall, Frederick Hall, wrote a lot of spirituals uh, in his day. He had composed a lot. And so uh, he was an elderly gentleman and, uh, when, when I met him. And at the same time, he was over the music department. And so I learned a lot of theory, and I've learned to hear his music. So 
I kind of deeply in, incorporated that. But I saw that on the other side, because like I told you before, I had went to St. Augustine High School, which was a Catholic high school. I was also Catholic, and Dillard University was not. And I knew a lot of people at Xavier, and Xavier at the time was a better music school. And so the people from Xavier University were recruiting me to go to, to switch, transfer to Xavier University. So I did, and I met Lionel Hampton. Lionel Hampton was at uh, uh, Xavier University. Ellis Marcellus was at Xavier University uh, during all those times. So we had a lot of named people that was there. So I wound up graduating from Xavier University, magna cum laude, from, from, from there. And, and that was the time when I got with what we called the Deacon's Band. And the Deacon's Band was some guys that were from St. Augustine High School. And they actually uh, changed the name and became Chocolate Milk. And Chocolate Milk actually was a jazz group without the vocalist playing in the quarters. We called it the quarters, this Bourbon Street. And we always call it the French Quarter. So, and that's where they actually started to perform. But it wasn't until um, the, the owners were saying that y'all playing a lot of jazz and that, but we're having a lot of competition from other bands and they're playing funk music and you need a singer and da 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 da. And that's how I got recruited into uh, Chocolate Milk. And that must have been about 1973. Okay, let me stop you there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wow, uh, very mm -hmm. impressive scholastically, Frank. Wow, mm. I was, I, I was, uh, I, like I said, I was a guy that was always yearning to learn more and more and more, you know, and uh, that helped uh, me go through all of those things. That's and great. So, uh, uh, so, did you have to audition for Chocolate Milk, or how did they choose you as a as a singer for the group? I actually, uh, taking back a little bit. Um, I was uh, going to, I'm going to take you back to a little bit when I was at Dillard because I had the early bird. I was still there. And my sophomore year, I, was, I didn't leave Dillard until after my sophomore year. So I was there at Dillard. And like I said, it was very challenging. We had to have 21 hours. So I had 21 hours to study. And I also had uh, uh, United Parcel uh, during that time. It was like a five-hour I would work from 11 in the morning to about sometimes seven in the morning. And then sometimes they make the shift almost to eight, which I had an eight o'clock class. So I had to rush from there and go right over there. And so it was that kind of a thing during that time. And when I had my opera, because I doing Dillard, uh, at Dillard University vocally, we sang a lot of uh, operettas and operas and little recitatives to that and a whole bit. And so we had performances to do in the cathedral, in, 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 the, in the cathedral part of the uh, of Dillard University. And all of the music students would come and, and then all of they would invite all of the school to come. So at that time, a lot of the St. Augustine uh, students that was there saw me perform and they were recruiting me from that. Now, mind you that they did have a lot of other uh, uh, soloists in their bands already and they always wanted me to audition for that um, the problem again uh, for them not for me was that 
although I was auditioning, they were already sold on me. It was just the people that already had a job as as a soloist had to had to come up to par to keep their job. Um, so that's how it kind of started. So they recruited me over, and they, the little manager they had there said, you know, we would like to have you, but we have another singer. And so, you know, uh, we have to work it out with that other singer to, to try to get you in. Uh, so it was that, that kind of thing. That's how it was with the Deacons. That's how it was with Chocolate Milk. It was the same, the same kind of thing. Everybody had heard about me from that. Uh, they liked the tone. They liked where I was and, and also my ability to, to, uh, to know the music very well. I would catch on and help them learn it through, and the rehearsals were easy. So we would learn like a lot of Herbie Hancock. During that time, it was, um, Herbie Hancock had a big record out called Headhunters, which was, was, was a, a big record, uh, Chameleon, and yeah. a lot of bands were struggling to play that and play that with the changes that was, that was actually there. Some people made up theirs, but we were like dead on, and people were coming by the sea. So we had gotten like little contracts to perform at, clubs so again here i am 21 hours at school go to united parcel and then i also had the the it was called the horse at the time the horse club and had to go to the club 77 in the horse club and it usually started around 7 p.m and then end around we would play to about maybe 10 sometimes 11 and so that was enough time. By the time I finished, it was time for me to go to United Parcel and da 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 da. So that was the, my whole ritual, all of it. You know, Frank, hearing you tell that routine, you know, I think yeah. back when I was in college too, and yeah. at one point I was working like a full time job. Right. And I look back and I, and I was like doing a disc jockey work. And yeah. I'm thinking, how, how on earth did I ever how do all that? You know? That's exactly how, <laughs> how in the world. No sleep. What did I eat? It was just like it was crazy. But I do remember a lot of the times that, oh, because I was a sorter, I had I was first taking uh, uh, boxes out of the big box line. They have the big trailer truck, the eighteen wheeler, and we had to take things out of that and put it on the on the uh, 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 the, uh, the with the uh, the, the, the track. It's it's like the track. We put it on the track and roll it with. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think that's what you call it, but, but we were putting it on that, and and it was how fast you could get it out. And usually they put two um, two unloaders, we would call it, unloaders, and we'd have to unload that and take it. I had gotten so good at doing it that they actually put me in there by myself to do it. And then I it was uh, it was only then financially that I figured out like, mm, they're using me like crazy, like I could do it by myself, but they were killing me. The, you know, they, they wouldn't get anybody else to, yeah, so they were burning me out. So, but I figured it out. But I also learned how to read as I was putting it out and I was doing it slower. And so I would read the addresses and not memorize it. And so uh, they said, wow, this guy, he, he would be a better sorter than the unloader. So I wind up being a sorter and sorting packages into the box line, into the, into the trucks and the whole bit. So I went to that to being a personal loader for the, for the truck driver. So I would do this almost till when he, the truck driver comes in the morning to take his packages and the whole bit. I would actually see between 12 and about 2 o'clock, I don't know how I loaded those because I was always sleeping. 
Mm-hmm. I was sleepwalking the whole time, taking boxes out of the box. I, 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 I always zombie. joke about that, like a zombie. I always joke about well, Frank, it many times. But, uh, Frank, when you were in school then and, and going for that, what, what were your career aspirations? Uh, it was always, you know, uh, a lot of people had that problem. And, and, and I, that was kind of blessed with not having that problem. When I was, oh gosh, when I was about 14, I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted, and I knew where I wanted, and I knew what I wanted to do. The problem was, is that was there a vehicle for me because I didn't know who to talk to or who to go to to handle that. But I did know what I wanted to. I wanted to do that. So when I went to college, I, I automatically went into music because that's what I wanted to do. It was only till I got to be about maybe seventeen that. I saw a music teacher uh, um, and a music teacher that taught music. And I said, well, you know, if I can't do my dream, that's something else I could possibly do. And so I saw that. But I also met the girl of my life. I met my wife, who is I've been married to almost 50 years now. But but uh, when I when when I was I met her when I was 14 and uh, and her mom was a. Uh, teacher. She herself became a teacher later. She was a dancer and she became a teacher. And so, but that was from her mom that would always, you know, say, you know, you can, you can teach music. There is a field where you teach music in, in the New Orleans public schools. Uh, so, so I didn't so, know anything about that. Somehow when you were doing and, all that stuff around the clock, you still found time for a girlfriend. That, that Through all of that, isn't that something? <laughs> And that's a hats off because, like I said, all of these years, after all these years, she's still, you know, because, you know, how well, us musicians and the traveling, you know, she was she was a lot of times left behind. And so uh, uh, it's a very a big tribute to her cur- courageous courage and her uh, her her love. It was just so big. And and uh, and I, I am blessed. I appreciate it. And uh, and I try to never forget it. And, and it kept it kept me going, so um, and and I and I actually didn't you know that's why I say how life is, but really I didn't uh, want it that way. I even though I had her as I would, I knew that music was what I wanted, and I knew that that probably wouldn't be a place for her. And she saw otherwise, but uh, I was I was against it. I was like, mm, I don't think this is gonna work, you know, but. Uh, she stuck with it, and so that was the the deal. What her her mother, which happened to be my mother-in-law, uh, we had a great relationship, and she introduced me to music as a music teacher. And that's when, at the age of maybe eighteen, seventeen, eighteen, is when I thought mm, I could possibly do that. But here's the big thing: the big thing is after I got to be eighteen, and we were in the clubs, and we were doing so well, uh, there were producers looking for us because at that time there were uh, what we call uh, uh, self-contained bands all over the place during that time. Everybody was having a band. And so uh, when I started playing at the club at the horse, uh, Alan Toussaint at the time, who had the meters, was looking for another self-contained band. and the meters were taking off. They were going to their own labels and da da da. So he was looking for somebody else, and we were told of that. 
And so the meeting was uh, happening one in the middle of the week. And it was in the daytime, and I was figuring out how I'm going to do this because I'm working, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I, and I had to cut classes to actually try to get to the meeting at the studio to try to talk to them about us uh, possibly working with Alan Toussaint. And during that time, Alan Toussaint already had, a, he had two contracts, one with Warner Brothers and one with RCA Records. And um, he and his manager at the time, Marshall Seahorn, was taking our uh, songs to those two companies. RCA gave the best offer. And uh, Frank, who was the leader of Chocolate Milk at that time? Uh, the, the leader is still at this time uh, is Joe Smith. It hasn't changed. Joe Smith, we call him Joe Fox. He's the trumpet player. And taking you back there, I was not the original, original member of Chocolate Milk because Chocolate Milk was a a jazz uh, instrumental group. There's only four pieces. It was drums, trumpet, saxophone player, and organ piano player slash. That was it. That was the four. And, um, and it was only until they asked for, the owners asked for that they needed to have more. They needed to have a lead singer, and they started to, to look for a lead singer. I am the, the only lead singer they ever had. Um, I just didn't start immediately with Chocolate Milk. It was a jazz group first. And Joe Smith, who's Joe Fox, the trumpet player, he was originally with that group, along with Amity Castanel. So, so that's how it's clear. Do you know what the origin of the name was? The, the origin was Chocolate Milk. It was always Chocolate Milk. But, but why did they call it that? Well, well, at the time, again, um, everybody was thinking about how they can actually... Uh, come up with a name that would be uh, indicative of the sound that that they had, and um, although they were playing jazz, um, they were really funk. But they played jazz very well. But they were really funk. So they had a melting pot of all of it, and it's indicative of of kind of what uh, New Orleans is. And New Orleans is that melting pot where. There is no really white. There is no black. There is no, there is no really true anything. Everything is a mixed. And at the time, all of the, uh, it was a gumbo. And at the time, to be honest, that when they were a jazz group, all the guys in the group were your color. They were considered black, but they were your color. So, mm -hmm. they, you know, they come from the Creole. So all four of them were that. So they, they actually were called Milk, the Milk Brothers, Milk. And then I came along and I put a little chocolate into that milk and, 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 and thus came the, the, sound, the name Chocolate Milk. And so it kind of had the mixture of, it's just saying that we're a culture of a gumbo, a mixture of everybody. So that's kind of how Chocolate Milk took its, its little place of that. And so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it came about. And so when I got there, uh, then Robert Dibon got there, and he's about my color also, so it was that. And, and, but that's the guys, the basic guys that kind of started that, again, was Joe Fox on trumpet and Emma D. Castanel. Um, and and they, were, they were actually what we call the mulatta 
uh, or from their from their generation, mulatta from here in New Orleans, always mean that you know there were there were um, African American people trying to be uh, uh, passing for white because they could they could actually go both places. Unless somebody did their, did their research and saw that where their neighborhoods, where they came from. But usually that's what they did. So that was kind of the culture that happened here in New Orleans. So, um, and that's why I, uh, you know, fast forward, that's how I got to Groove City and I wrote Groove City. It was about the culture of all of it. And so, uh, and that's kind of tying with chocolate milk. So, um so like all the other groups during that time, Red Wind and Fire and da, 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 everybody had a concept of what that was. Ohio players were from Ohio, and most of the time their, their kind of uh, culture was about their pimp mentality of how they played, uh, on, not only played music, but played on women and, and, and actually used that pimp technique. And so they became the Ohio players right. using that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, was, that was one of so, my favorites right there. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so, so, uh -huh. so you connected with Alan Tucson and you became right. his band somehow. Right. Right. So, right. Well, yeah. He, yeah, he actually uh, recruited, like I said, Marshall Seaharm, which was his his his, uh, his manager. He worked that out with RCA. We got the deal on RCA Records. And um, RCA was not really at the time a funk, a funk label. So the A&R and the president of A&R at that time was, I think, James Harris, uh, Ray Harris, I'm sorry, Ray Harris. And, and, and Ray Harris, he, he was over the A&R there, president of A&R for funk. He kind of handled that. But they, don't, they didn't really handle it, handle it. They were very new to all of it. And... and uh, uh, they made a lot of mistakes with it, trying to make that happen. Um, but they loved the group and they loved the sound of the group. They loved what, what we were doing. Alan Toussaint was, to be honest, not really considered on RCA and, and the Warner Brothers as a funk guy. He was really a pop guy uh, that wrote a lot of the songs that... Uh, that was indicative of that time, you know. So for the dating game, the, the dating game song, he wrote that, and that was kind of like uh, whipped cream. He wrote those kinds of songs, and they were like pop songs. They weren't really funk, funk songs. So he was able to pass through that with without any problem getting that done. Not with any problem, but it was less of a problem for than it was for us because we were a funk group on RCA records, which was pretty tough. And there was only other, one other that was closer to us was a self-contained group, and it was called the New Birth, the New Birth uh, Band. And the New Birth was, you know, they, they were on RCA records too, but they weren't really funk, funk. But more soul, yeah. More so, you know what I'm saying? So uh, it was tough to really do us the, the way they would like to market us. They didn't really do a great job doing that. But uh, we got the best out of that and, and as much as we could. So our first record actually speaks louder than words. We put that out and it went to about like number 14 or 15 on Billboard charts um, for R&B. And uh, during that time, that was considered a nice little hit. So we were able to, you know, travel and tour. We toured with the Times. The Times was another RCA group, T-Y-M-E-S, the Times. Was, oh, yeah. They were older group. 
Mm-hmm. They were older, but we toured with them because they were on RCA records. And see that again, we didn't have anybody just, to just a little bit of on. time. Was that their song? Give me yes, just a little bit was, more time. Or just more time. That's yeah. exactly what it was. Yes. Yep. So that was that was a group, and that's what we 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 went on the them for a while, and and then we came out with another. Uh, uh, after action, speak loud in words. We came out well, with want, another. Hold, hold on, Frank. I want to talk to you about that mm-hmm. album. Yeah, yeah. Let's hold our horses on that one because the first album. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah. album deserves uh, some discussion. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. me, it was a great debut. Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, I want to point out some specific tracks that were on there for the viewers. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's a great title mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really liked My Mind is Hazy. That was really Mind is Hazy. Yeah, yeah. Real funky, My Mind is Hazy. Yeah, great uh, horns. The horns were phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. At that particular time, uh, during our time, as I can remember, a trumpet and sax player that actually they thought and played whatever they thought, it came as a one. And that was hard to to come by because they actually sound, could have a one sound. I mean, they they was that they were that tight, and we never uh, uh, saw anybody during that time that had a tight horn section as tight as we had those the trumpet and sax together. And, yeah, this uh, is this is nineteen seventy five. So that's also, right. yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, the other uh, great tracks I really liked were uh, Pretty Pimp and Willie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah we which, know that was the time. That was, all of those are what the times, and I guess that's what I say when Ohio players came out. Uh, well, if you remember um, Curtis Mayfield, right around all of that time, this this is what Superfly was all about. This was what that time of the era where 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 dope was pre- prevalent, and also pimping women were were prevalent. And that Superfly. What, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, Curtis super Mayfield. Fun. So all all of this came out of that same kind of thought process. So. So when you thought about the play Ohio players, we thought about Pimp Pretty Pimp and Willie, and we we also during that time thought about how you can incorporate uh, outside sounds to the music. So we would have the the Rolls Royce blowing the horn, beep beep beep, mm, and turn around and yeah, I'm Pretty Pimp and Willie. And so we actually had the drummer uh, Dwight, and Dwight has almost the same name I have. We actually have the same birthday. Uh, we're a year different. He's a year older than me, but my birthday is September fourth, and his birthday is September fourth. Wow. And his and he's he's Dwight Richards, and I'm Frank Richard. And a lot of times, RCA record would get that mixed up. They'd swap our mm-hmm. pictures and 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 get it confused. And then they'll call me Richards, and you know, and, and him Richard, and it was crazy. But he was the drummer that actually sang on that song. I'm pretty pimping. Well, you know. Yeah. Oh, cool. hey, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah. So that I was, was say, actually I, the vocal on that one actually reminded me a little bit of the Ohio players' influence, just in that style. Yeah, because yeah. we because we actually toured with them, um, and and during that time, being as young as we were, and and as big as Skin Tight and all of those songs were for Ohio players, when we actually got a tour with them for people to say. Um, God, you guys are better than Ohio players. And so uh, on tour, they were telling us that. And that kind of filled our heads to the point that we, we thought we should be doing those kinds of things. So we, we stretched out. And that's kind of how Pretty Pimp and Willie and all that. Because we actually was touring with Irwin and Fire and Ohio players during that time. And, and Irwin and Fire didn't have anybody touring with them. Usually they come either by themselves 
or if they came with anybody with somebody they were already involved with, like Denise Williams, because they played on the records, or, or there was a group yeah. of promotionals, or Pockets. I think they produced a group that they, they had of their own call. I think it was called Pockets or something. But but when we started, and when Irwin Fire started, we were, we were opening for them, uh, and we opened for Ohio players. And, wow, that's a great bill there. Yeah, yeah, we opened for them. And uh, as I said, a lot of people were like, wait. You know, the only thing different is when we was with Irwin the Fire, we could play the Ohio Players songs. And so we could put a little, but when we got to Ohio Players, we couldn't play none of their songs. We, we had to make sure. Oh, uh, you actually we covered some of their songs? Yeah, yeah, oh, oh, definitely. And, uh, and, 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 I, and I guess if you, if you go back, uh, not that far back, but if you go back when we were with uh, the producer, Alan, Alan Jones, when we were at the Bar Cave, um, they realized that I had that, uh, that kind of, that I could do that kind of thing because I did it as a young. So that's how Blue Jeans came about. And we had a song called Blue Jeans on that album. And Blue Jeans is kind of like an Ohio player song, except it's done by me. Yeah, yeah, we'll but get to I that. A little twang. It's a good one too. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. That's like the Larry Dotson yeah. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On, on this record, yeah, though, louder than words. I wanted to also mention the song "People." Um, yeah. Which was very cool. Yeah, I wrote that. yeah. Yeah. Nice. It had to me sort of like a Gil Scott Heron kind of vibe almost. Yeah. Um, um, we 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 came from from another like I said during that era all of that was prevalent all of that was around so when we were in the clubs and playing especially that's where most of our songs were written when we were at the Hearts Club and playing and people used to come and see us and perform and we would watch how they how they behaved themselves in the club and um, everybody had a joint everybody had a you know, and everybody was swearing to God that they were religious and they'd go to church the next morning and, you know, we'd get off at 12, sometimes 4 o'clock in the morning and then, you know, it's a Saturday night and Sunday they were off to church and you could see them, you know, with the weeds still in their breath, on their breath and, it was, you know, mm -hmm. it was all of that. And so we incorporated what was going on and that's how people you know and how how trusted they are and how how much of a lie it all is and you know and but we're all sinners and we're all we you know it's not something that we can just judge everybody you this and you're that and you're that we you know we, we're all sinners but it was a but it was a a statement made that hey this is what we're doing and you know take a look at it and you know Make make a decision on yourself, or you know, if you want to be saved, that's God for forgiveness and really mean it. So that was the the song. If you want to be saved, ask God forgiveness. And the horn parts are naturally that the arrangements came from Joe and Amity together, and it, it worked really really well. It did you know? yeah, the, the whole record just very impressive debut. And I got to ask you also, Frank, about the mm -hmm. cover. The cover had a very right. Young, uh, attractive lady on it. Was that yeah. cover also influenced by the Ohio players? Yeah. And, yes. And and, yes. and and did you get some controversy on that cover? Well, we, we, not 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 a lot of controversy from the, from any artist, but uh, the controversy in itself about you know how women are exposed and da 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 da, da during that time, and uh, it, it was it was good and bad. It wasn't uh, all bad and it wasn't all good. It was just like about half and half. But the but the point of the matter is. 
it helped sell the album because everybody, when they looked at it, that was the first thing that attracted them. Especially um, the guys. So, yeah. Right, especially <laughs> the guys. Especially the guys. And you and, and the women too, but especially the guys. And so that that was a big catch. And yeah, you're right. I mean, because we toured and we did so much with the Ohio players, that was one of the, the, the reasons why we came up with that. Plus, though, plus, as I said before, RCA Records, um, the A&R people and marketing people, they really did not know how to handle uh, a group of like us, an African-American group who plays funk like us. So the only thing they can actually um, put it to put it with is Ohio players. Right. They had they to have a, put uh, a, t- a template to go off of. Exactly. And so that's why they, they went they went with that. So they rolled with that because that was the first thing that was going on. So we went that. And then ironically, uh, LZ White, who was the manager of Ohio Players, came to recruit us and wanted to manage us. So that made it further what it was to be. So we had that happening. Well, and for you guys, I mean, the cover, though, showing the breasts, you know, was right. a, a tie-in, though, actually, to the name of Chocolate Milk. So it kind of worked. Right on a different level from what the Ohio players were doing. That's exactly right. And in fact, that's what LZ White had said, the manager, when he said, chocolate milk, that's a nice name, da-da-da-da. You know, we can use the, we can use the breasts and da-da-da-da. So all of that came with that idea because we really didn't have an, an A&R person really doing that for RCA, for us. It was that that happened with, with Ohio players. Just like you're just saying it, that's exactly what was presented to us and we thought it was nice as a young kids and you know about women and yeah that's a great hey i know that sells albums let's go with it and 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 ohio players never challenged it or anything like that we didn't get any problems yeah i see it i see it (laughs) i see it yep that was signed by sugarfoot you know um sugarfoot uh is hilarious and he would always come in and he's always say these hypocritical things because he's so funny all the time. And every time we'd make a statement, we'd say, hi, Sugarfoot, you know, da 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 he say, he say, yeah, it look like y'all are trying, trying to outdo us, you know, but I don't want to make all the money. I don't want to make all the money. And he would, the <laughs> way he would say that, it was such a hilarious guy. He was, he was himself the whole time. Uh, when I used to sing that kind, that way, and try to put that twang on it, um, that was me. I could actually do it, but but to see somebody who actually was that, like he wasn't trying to do that. He was the original he, he was, Yeah, he was just yeah. That was him actually doing it, and so uh, that was fascinating. That was always fascinating. So but, so yeah. so Frank, you know, talking about mm-hmm. the band playing shows at that time in the mid seventies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the Ohio players, as great as they were, I saw them a number of times back then. Um, they weren't quite as good live as they were in studio. A lot of people, I think, right. would do that. Um, right, right. And that's did what talk, we did chocolate milk bring it on stage as good that, or better than in studio? Yeah, that, that was the talk. The talk was that we were better than the higher players. And so it, the, world, the word got around. Like I said, Sugarfoot was, uh, you know, he would, he would say it when we come out the dressing room and da-da-da-da, you know. But it, it, it was a fact that they were a better studio uh, group than a live group. They pulled it off uh, in the studio, which to me, to be honest, they did the studio better than we did the studio. 
And I think Very it's only, yeah, and I, and I think only because, um, not because of the musicianship, but I think only because they just had a great team at Mercury. Their, their team in the studio at Mercury and the engineers, the, the, the way they, they pushed it and presented that whole sound coming out of that, they did that. And we didn't have that kind of a team. Uh, Alan Toussaint, again, like I said, was uh, from that world. He wasn't from the world where, uh, and he was, uh, he was still a little bit further back in his thinking as far as uh, uh, doing things. But he also, he also was a money man. He's a financially money, you know, he thinks he, he, th he thought about money now. He didn't think about money later, but he thought about the money now and, and he would, he would make sure that we come in his studio to record. So all of the money and everything would come to his studio rather than look at it and say, hey, you know what? There are some studios in LA we can actually do and we can get a better and we can do this. We can go to Electric Lady. We can go to, we had, you know. Um, record and, plant. In fact, yeah, record plant, you know. And then there was a studio where I, that I actually talked them into going to do, which we will talk about later, which was the, the album Chocolate Milk where we were in space. And there was another Milky Way kind of chocolate milk. And, 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 and we did that one at, uh, I can't, the, the, the name is escaping me, but we did that, that one at the studio where the Jacksons did the Destiny album. The, total Experience uh, Studio. Total Experience. There you go. See, you're on it. We went to Total Experience, and that was a whole different world. All right, we'll and, get to that. And, and so we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll so, but, that. But, but that was the point, you know. Like, uh, so Alan Toussaint, again, wanted us to stay in his own studio and, and do it in his own, but, but it was ancient. It was not up to date from where everything else was, sound-wise. So Ohio players did beat us on that. Mm -hmm. The thing about Alan Tucson, um, Frank, is mm -hmm. man, he wrote some songs that were turned into amazing funk tracks but um, right. by a lot of artists. But, you know, yeah. in talking, I had, I had um, yeah. um, George yeah. Porter yeah. Jr. on this show from The Meters. Yeah. Right. And I was surprised when he told me that Alan Tucson did very little with them in the studio. It was really just them. Yeah. Uh, how much did he actually do with you guys? Nothing. <laughs> and and O T H I N G and I, I'm telling you that because if he told you that I'm 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 right here behind him and I'm telling you that's the same thing that happened. Um, uh, that that was the downfall of it all. And like I said, Chocolate Milk, as good as a group as it was, and a lot of people heard and said how wow y'all guys were really good because a lot of people here said man y'all good why y'all you know but the but the deal was is that. If you look at Earth, Wind, and Fire, and you look at Cavallo, Rafalo, and you look at their management team, and you look at the big Columbia label, everybody was behind that. Like they had, and they had Charles Stephanie, they had back from Ramsey Lewis Trio, Maurice White, and Ramsey Lewis was big. They did the, they, they set them off doing the, Deo, Papa, Deo. I forgot the name of that song. It's escaping me. But that was before they actually did their own album. They did that on the Ramsey. Sun Goddess. Sun Goddess. There you go. On Columbia. So they had a team of people that put them there. And so we didn't have that team. So George Porter is correct on that. So uh, Alan Toussaint did not come into the studio and actually work with us until we did the We're All In This Together album. 
And so I know you'll get to that, but yeah, uh, that uh, we all in this together. That's when he actually came. But when he came, we actually begged him to come because he would never come. But after he did that album, we all in this together. We still, myself especially, we wanted something more. You know how I was as a young kid. I always wanted more and more. That's how I was. How, how, so, how, how did you take to being a front person, though? It's one thing to have all that training and be able to sing and have the technical ability. But, um, you know, were you comfortable being the focal point on stage? Uh, and did you have when, to work at that? When I, when, I, when I go back to it, when I go back and I listen to a lot of the artists uh, that talk, uh, like Prince, uh, more like Michael Jackson, because when I was young, I was older than Michael, but I wasn't that old. Like he was, he was, must have been about 10. I was like 15 and I could sing all of his songs in my falsetto. I would sing all of his songs to write on the, on a, and I remember all of the interviews that he would have, you know, he, that they, they would interview him. They say, well, how this little guy, you know, you, you, you act like you are, when you're on stage, you're just a kid. But when you're on stage, you act like an adult. I mean, you how you handle yourself. And 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 his answer was always that you know he just felt at home on stage. And 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 that's my answer. My answer is that uh, on stage, um, I feel I could just do anything on stage. It was never something that I could contrive or make up, or I could just be me. And and always when I'm when I'm me. I'm just so much better. The highlight is always there when I'm when I'm doing it. We even tried with choreographers. We had choreographers doing our early years with with, with the Barcade, naturally, and because we were going on tour with them, and and a lot of that just didn't work, especially with me, um, um, because I'm just like the I just like to be really free on stage, and I like to be able to do what I need to do. And it wasn't that I couldn't do the choreography choreography I did that it's just that it was very constricted so um uh, where I didn't meet a choreographer where they could actually put us in that choreographer mode and then let me move out like a like a Michael Jackson did because if you notice Motown had a machine behind them so when you have the temps and you had the impressions and you had uh, I mean the uh, the miracles and you had all of those behind you that's do doing that they had a machine and Supremes they could actually pull that all of that off we didn't have that so we had some choreographers but they were never at that level and so the ones that they had didn't didn't do justice to 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 the to me did so you guys get mentioned to the elaborate costumes at all uh the costumes came with how that times came. And so we did have a person that was in New Orleans and she she gave us some, uh, one time we had mirrored uh, costumes, they had mirrors all over it. And I used to dance so much, I used to cut my fingers every time I put my hands on on my clothes to move. And so it was that, but it was, but it was the eye catcher for sure. We went to Kansas City and the girls went crazy over that. I mean, it was like, you know, we, they, we were like the Michael Jacksons all over again. I mean. I did How About Love, and I just couldn't finish the song. It was screaming and hollering so much. But, yeah. but two things happened because of that. It was in Kansas City, uh, 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 How About Love was a big, big song. That was number one. But, but number two is we were on tour with Cool in the Gang, and Cool in the Gang didn't want to headline that act because they had another engagement. 
So they asked if we could be the headliners. And so, and if, and if you ever remember the Cool in the Gang, Cool in the Gang was pretty much at that time like Ohio players. They were not good. Before JT. Before JT, they were not good. Great in the studio, but not good live. And so they were playing a lot of jazz stuff and a lot of it. They were turning a lot of people off and we'd come on stage. And so, and we were headlining. So we really killed it. So that was why it was so big in, in Kansas city. And like you say, until JT, when JT came along, there was a system there that worked out their choreography and got it. So when they did ladies night, I mean, they were on it, you know? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that was a difference. Yeah. Let's move on uh, through some of the mm -hmm. other re records, Frank. Yeah, yeah. So the next one, 76, was uh, coming, right? Yeah, it was, that was, well, yeah. We also had the second album, and that's what I was telling you. L.Z. White came on as the, uh, as the uh, manager from, from, from Ohio Players. And that song was called, I mean, that album was called Chocolate Milk. Well, I got so them both here. So which one came first? The Chocolate Milk with the lady on it, uh, the actual lady on it. That's the first one that had the Tin Man on it. We did America's song, Tin Man, um, a song by America. Right. What made you guys and, cover that song? Like I said, again, um, that first album, during that time, we were so popular. Like, we played the horse. We played the clubs. We played everywhere. And then by the time we, we did the clubs in the, in the rural areas, in urban areas, then we moved and stretched out to, to, to a lot of... Uh, uh, white clientele and and because we were doing that and performing with uh chicago and all of the people that were coming through there at the time and we started listening more and more to to uh not just funk music but pop music and so we listened to uh at the time america's had this song called uh Sometimes late when things are, and so the Tin Man came through that, and so uh, I just put my own spin to it, and then we put the jazz licks to it, the Tin Man, and and we just tried it out, and then when we tried it out, everybody liked it, so we just kept it on the album. Um, but that was one of the songs that that was the first album. Right. Second album has a picture of the lady, but it's more of a close up, mm -hmm. and so you can't really see her face. So. And it had the dripping chocolate milk letters. The letters yeah. were dripped like milk. That was the second album. And that was the one with How About Love, what I was telling you about, that everybody in Kansas City really nice loved. Nice ballad, so, really good ballad. That came from the second. Then the third album came. And when the third album came, actually, we had, after the second album, we had a nice bass player. Robert, Robert Dabon had a brother, Ernest Dabon, and Ernest played bass. And... Right around that time, Richard Pryor, I remember his uh, comedy album had came out. Uh, this was a big, it's a huge for, for, for Richard Pryor. And we played it on LSU's campus. And, and there was a club on LSU campus that we played. And Ernest Dabon got so spaced out and crazy. He kicked the congas over. He was spaced out. He was playing the bass and he was all over the place. And, uh, and the owner of the club got so irate and, and uh, you know, uh, they, they, they was threatening to, to throw us out and not have us come back anymore. And uh, it was then that we had a meeting to get rid of the bass player. Uh, it was a hard decision because it was Robert, the keyboard player's brother. And 
he felt some kind of way about it, even though. But anyway, we, we got rid of that bass player, and that was the hardest part. So the third album coming around with the coming album, we had to look for a bass player. And it just so happened that because of our popularity, uh, this guy, David Barard, came around and said that he'd play bass with us. And he was a kind of bass player at the time where you have the thumping bass, the, the popping bass. And, well, I'll tell you right now that that mm -hmm. song on there, I Refuse, reminds me straight out of Larry Graham. Yeah, that was David Barron. And, that, and, and that's, what, that's what happened. And show you the t signs of the times. Ernest Dabon was a wonderful bass player, but he was smooth. He was just, everything was smooth about him. And when we lost him, or got rid of him, rather, and, and we looked for another bass player, and we got David Barrard. And, and when we got David Barrard, he was a different kind of style. He was definitely funk, funk. And uh, it reminds you so much of Larry Graham. And, we, and at the time, that's where we were already. We were already into Graham Central Station. We were playing Graham Central Station songs. We were, we were there. And so when he came along thumping, that's how I refused. And the coming album, that's how that happened. And that's how we started writing towards that. Uh, Coming was one of the song singles from that album. Yeah. Yeah. I want to take a moment, Frank, to just mention some of the other cuts. So on um, mm -hmm. the uh, self-titled record. Yes. First off, it's amazing that you managed to put out two records in the same calendar year, considering what you went through with the bass player and all. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, it was. It was a, like I said, it was a, a blessing at the, at, in disguise, and, and at the same time, you know, it was a hard. It was a hard year for us because we didn't know who we were going to replace or how we were going to come up with a bass player. You, know, you, so. you mentioned Cool and the Gang before, and that second mm -hmm. record had Let the Music Take Your Mind. Is that yeah. the same? That's the same Cool yeah. and the Gang song, right? But you guys slowed it down a little bit? Well, actually, no, it's, a, it's an actual, we, we did a little Cool and the Gang, but that's an actual original song. I wrote that song, but it, yeah, it, I got it the idea from Cool oh. in the Gang. I got okay. the idea, but it was it's 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 uh it's original chocolate milk song. Well, I, I call it chocolate milk song because if you ever look at the credits, all the songs that I wrote I shared with the group the whole time. So they all have their names on it, which that was stupid of me, but that's the mm. way that worked. That's a lot of people time. did it that way back then and they regret it mm. now. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I also liked uh, Party Happy on there. That was a really good funk song that, to me, has yeah. some Earth, Wind & Fire influence. Yeah, yeah. Party Happy is kind of like that. It had a little bit, because we had that relationship all over, like I said, we had that experience all around us. We had a little bit of uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, and we played a lot of Herbie Hancock uh, during that time. And so it, it kind of had a lot of those feels, especially uh, there's a song called Star Bright, which was on the... Uh, the coming album mm -hmm. and uh stop right had that feeling of uh again earth wind and fire and the feeling of what well, we had heard herbie hancock that feeling of it. Uh, when you're talking about herbie hancock on the mm -hmm. uh, chocolate milk record it closes with pluck it which is pluck an it. instrumental right so that was uh uh again we we did that song um um that was after we did the, when we did the Chameleon, we did the tour with them. And after we had came back, we did the clubs for a while. And then we had a rehearsal and, and everybody was saying the word F, uh, you know, fuck it. And so and we couldn't say that. 
And so we, we say, well, we can't say that. We need to change that. And so we change it to pluck it. And yeah. so hopefully that was going to give the, the idea of that. But. Yeah, well, regardless, you know, mm -hmm. uh, no matter mm -hmm. what, a song mm -hmm. called Pluck It, you know, it's got to be funky. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it was. Uh, so yeah. what did yeah. you do percussion on that or did you do anything on that? Uh, I played percussion on it. I have, uh, I, at the time when I did Actually Speak Louder Than Words, I played hero. And I also played bells, and, and a lot of times I would play the tambourine all the time. So uh, the percussionist on that on that particular one was, uh, I, I did a little bit of the, it's a hand drum and, uh, and a little bit of the gyro, which I did in the, on the Action Speaks Loud and Worse. But I put, the, I put the gyro up up front. So that was the first thing you heard when, uh, when the song came on. You would hear the, the, the gyro. And then the bass came with the synthesizer bass. But uh, on that particular song, just percussion, I played. Uh -huh. That was it. On, yeah. on the common record that you were talking about with the changeover and the bass player, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned already songs I was going to mention, but one other I want to mention is Something New, right. uh, which to me right. had a little bit of like a war kind of vibe. Right. Well, it had a little bit of war, and, uh, and, and also uh, during that time, it was just starting to happen. There was a group called LTD, which they were playing a little bit of funk kind of during that time. It was with Jeffrey Osborne, but it was called LTD. And, um, and his voice tone was similar to mine as far as the baritone voice was. He just had a light uh, head tone voice that he added to that. And I've also had that too, so it was very kind of similar. So... Uh, that during that time, they had a song called Concentrate on You, which mm -hmm. was a big song uh, for, for them. And uh, that's how something new came about through that. And again, we toured with war. And so it's going to have that feeling because we played back in the day when I first started with Chocolate Milk, we were playing Four Cornered Room and we were playing uh, Slipping in the Darkness and I can go on and on and on. And really, if you listen to uh, Grand Theft, there's a song called Grand Theft that Alan supposedly wrote with us. On the next record, yeah. On the next record. If you listen to Grand Theft, it's actually a slipping in the darkness kind of beat. Dump, 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 dump. A lot so of people have copied that in different ways. Exactly. exactly. Well, you know, that's the influence of war. I mean, that was yeah. the war was very influential. And, uh, you know, War, when I saw them as a, I used to go to auditorium when I saw the groups that played, they, they were the most impressive to me because they actually played, played. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't say a word. They just come on and just play. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, back then it's called Papa D would play the congas. I mean, he played the congas like, no, like nobody's business. I mean, he just come on and just, they just be whipping it. And as soon as they come on stage, they just play. They don't sing. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't use any vocals. They just play. And and what was interesting to me is they was not. It was never boring. It was always. It was always interesting. So their it, their their transitions were always kept interested. And a lot of the songs were not memorable, like as if they as if they started composing them 
on the stage. Improvisational. Yeah. There, there were there was completely improv when they were doing it. And it and it really uh knocked me off. Out of all the groups during that time, I really like war. And Lee Oscar was such a charismatic uh harmonica player that we've never saw and I I never saw in my time. I've never really saw, I've heard Stevie Wonder play and he plays beautifully, but Lee Oscar had that charisma about him, how he played through his body because his body language would would take you to another place. It's almost like Joe Cocker, when Joe Cocker sings to me, when I hear Joe Cocker sing it, it's, it's, it's a, it's the way he sings that. It's like he's he's getting an epileptic fit. It's yeah. like he's it is and he's is intriguing. It's like you wanna, you know, catch him. You wanna save him. You wanna wipe. You wanna try to do something. So he keeps your your eyes. He keeps your attention. You know. So um, yeah. that's what Lee Oscar was. So can you imagine a great. group like can you imagine a group like War trying the choreography steps at all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not happening. Not happening. You're not happening. Except for uh, uh, what we call it, John Bellucci. Except for I, I saw John Bellucci. John Co- Joe, Joe Cocker, man. Joe, Joe Cocker. <laughs> John Bellucci. <laughs> you know. So, uh, but but it's amazing, and 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 this what this what made people what they were, and and I, I enjoyed that. Uh, yeah. You know, both War and separately, the Oscar have been on Truth and Rhythm, so. Uh, viewers, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen those, make sure you catch them. Okay, I will try to. I will try to check. In- including, including Frank. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. All right, Frank. Harold, I met Harold. Harold is still. He might be still down here, but I met Harold, the drummer. Um, and and uh, and and we had some wonderful conversations about about uh, War. And I was asking him about because I really like Lee Oscar, and I hadn't heard him. I noticed that Wall had different names now. They they were low rider band, right? Yeah. Exactly, low rider and all that. And matter of fact, the bass player that I was telling you about, he was actually playing with them for a while. So, the mm-hmm. one that thumping when we got for coming. So, interesting. Uh, 